continue in our series through the book of Ephesians together. So if you have a Bible, you can open that up to Ephesians chapter 5. We will be there. We have the text also printed out in the handout if you don't have a Bible or want to follow along there. We've called the series The Geography of Heaven because Ephesians paints a grand vision of what God has done for humanity in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus coming into the world of bearing sin and brokenness and death and flooding the world with light and life and truthfully the presence of God, which is, according to Scripture, the reality of heaven. It's not fully or finally here. One day he's coming back and bringing it. But in the meantime, in the interim, we who have chosen to follow Jesus in a very real way get to live in and with the presence of God and walk in the power of God for the shaping of his kingdom here in the world. And Ephesians paints that picture. Through the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's all unpacked theologically. All of the implications and the truth of our reality are expressed. And Paul has these amazing uh, images and powerful truths for us of what God has done for us in the gospel. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, he unpacks the, the, the on-the-ground implications of the reality of heaven being here. That's why we called this series the geography of heaven. It's intended to be lived and walked along. And so our hope is that we would, that we would get to really experience life with God together. Don't we want that? I think we all want that. In Ephesians 4, Paul starts talking about one of the most intimate and real places that the gospel works its way out. And it's one that we tend to ignore. Uh, it's the one that can be the most painful and difficult, and also the one that can be the most fulfilling and joyful, and that is our relationships. Because the truth is, we cannot follow Jesus and opt into following Jesus in a way that keeps the most intimate and the most demanding parts of us um, out of his authority over our lives. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him with all that we are, right? And so as we dive into this section of scripture again, we did last week as well, what we're going to start to see are the implications for following Jesus and what he has done as Lord and Savior worked out in the intimate, intricate places that we would if we're honest in our flesh, rather than just keep out from subjection to him. So we started talking last week about husbands and wives and the implications of the gospel that Paul unpacks in Ephesians 5. Last week, we talked about the theology of marriage. This week, we're diving into the practice of marriage. Because if there's anything that you could take away, maybe not anything, but one important thing that you could take away is that we learn to follow Jesus through practice not by simply employing perfection, okay? So, um, why don't you open up into Ephesians. We're going to start with verse 18, which you don't have printed out in the, the handout, but I'm going to start there because the context flows into our text for today. So would you stand with me as we open up God's Word So, let us listen to God's word. Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. 
And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks to us in ways that challenge our preconceived notions. Uh, We want to be disrupted in the reading of your word because you are God and we're not. You are gloriously good without any hint of darkness or evil or badness in you. And we are intimately aware of our own brokenness and sins. But we need you and your help to rightly understand Scripture and to rightly know how to live out this passage of Scripture because truthfully we desire, we yearn to be filled by your Spirit. We yearn to participate in life with you to the fullest. And an important element of that is learning in our relationships to be subject to one another, to love one another. And so would you please help us now? Show us the glory of Jesus. Help us to see the areas where we've been shaped more by the world than by you. And help us with wisdom and love uh, to learn to live in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take your seats. So as I already mentioned, this is our second week in the passage. Last week, we took the 30,000-foot view and talked about the theology of marriage. Uh, We saw last week that marriage isn't about us. Marriage is not about our personal fulfillment, though there are many ways in which it is fulfilling to us. But marriage displays both revelation of God's gospel, that is, it reveals it, 
as a husband dies for his wife, as Christ does for the church, and a wife receives that initiative of her husband as the church does for Christ, it, re- it reveals the gospel, but it also brings wisdom from God as marriages endure and thrive under God's design. Uh, Secondly, we saw the specifics of the theology that plays itself out into the implications of husbands and wives. Husbands take on a role of responsibility, of initiative, of dying to themselves as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are those who who have taken on the calling to die for one particular woman. That's what being a husband is. That's what Stepping into marriage is is saying, I love you, I want to give myself for you underneath the love of God. Uh, So, husbands, that's what you sign up for. Men, if, if you want to be married, that's what you sign up for. Wives take on the role of responding to that love. Ephesians 5 calls it submission or reverence or respect. Wives receive the love of their husband and respond to their husband's initiative in unity as they follow the calling of God together as one flesh. Wives' response isn't based on their husband's competency or greatness or merit, but out of being under Christ as her ultimate head. So ladies, marriage isn't about finding greater satisfaction in one particular man, but conveying the gospel through respect, following in the love of Christ in your marriage. Now, I know all sorts of of knots start coming together and all sorts of situations and circumstances pop up in our minds. So, a couple things. One, this cannot be worked out with a few fly-by teachings. This is a life of learned practice. We need to be in community. And so when you scan that QR code, you can get into community. You can get into a discipleship group. You can even sign up for mentorship. That's how all of this stuff is worked out. And so what we can't do is just say, that sounds terrible. I'm not doing it. And still say, we're we're following Jesus with all that we are. You have avenues to learn this stuff. This will be deeply inadequate to sort out all of the different complexities and nuances to find beauty in the midst of truth. Okay? Secondly, um, we're going to do a little bit of time of Q&A afterwards because this is, this is um, the practicals. It's supposed to be kind of practical in its outworking. So you can scan the QR code, and there's a button on there to text in a question about the teaching. I'll pull my phone out and go through those text messages for a few minutes at the end of this. So hopefully there's a little bit of practical back and forth that we can have, and anything that's not worked out there, we have our discussion table during lunch immediately following the gathering, and we can all go back there and be confused together. Sound good? Great. So, just like last week, as I was preparing for today, there were a few things that I think we need to say at the outset in order to rightly approach something that is so confounding and that we are set up by the discipling formation of our culture and context to misunderstand. Okay. First, we need to see that we can deconstruct old traditions that have been infused with God's word as its authority, but that are not from God's word. We can pull those apart and say, oh yeah, that made sense in a particular day and age long ago. 
Let's pull that apart, though, and not assume that it's the way that it needs to go now. That's a very good process. It's very helpful. We should not fear that. But what we can't do in deconstructing tradition is deconstruct truth. We need to figure out how to live out the truth that is unchanging in a context that changes rather rapidly. The hard part is discerning the difference between those two. That's why we need community, okay? In that pursuit, we need a few things. First, we need wisdom. We need to be able to speak in, with general principles or rules without thinking or saying or making absolute laws. We need to be able to speak in principles without believing those principles are laws, okay? So, for instance, I said this last week, uh, men are taller than women is a general truth, okay? That is just normal as far as statistical measures go. Men tend to be taller than women. Now, many of you are taller than me, so it's not a law, okay? The same can be applied over and over again, and what we need to do is, is understand it with the right posture to say, well, yeah, of course, that's generally true, but we're not going to build a whole system upon that one thing as though it's a law, okay? That's what wisdom is, is, is truth rightly applied. Second, we need to discern the difference between advantages and injustices. Advantages and injustices. We live in a moment where any difference or advantage is interpreted normally as some source of injustice. Now, many advantages are produced by injustices, whether individual and agential or systemic. Those we should approach with the posture of saying that's not right. But not all are. Not all difference is injustice. You can go back and read God's creation of the world, the account of creation, and there is binary in every sentence that speaks of God's creative order. Sun and moon, night and day, heavens and earth, male and female. God creates some difference so that his glory would be the thing that holds together these differences. But difference does not mean injustice. Tracking? God's design is that love would use advantages for the sake of another. That's God's purpose in creating difference and distinction. That unity of communion would be experienced. Third, we need to discern the nuance between that difference and equality. We live in a ruthless meritocracy. It's ruthless. It is not at all what God's desire is. We are in an inhuman system that demands you and I outdo one another in order to have some substance or success. That motivates us to try and pull apart any sort of difference and say, it's, it's not fair. In God's order, 
All of us are created with dignity and value and worth that is untouchable by success or failure. How freeing. If we don't start from that position and we bring in what the world gives us, we are going to be opposed to what God tells us because we're going to think that it's fundamentally unjust or not good. We need to start from the place of dignity and value in our createdness. Okay, we're almost done. Fourth, maturity. Christian maturity is always relational. Christian maturity is always relational. The reason that's important is because we cannot master a system of religion and not have it flow out into the way that we treat one another, in the way that we love one another, in the way that we serve one another. I think what we sometimes think is that I can be a mature Christian in a vacuum without hearing the words of Scripture that say, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. That is maturity. And it requires humility. Maturity is always relational, so we can't exclude our relationships from following Jesus. And lastly, marriages will look different in their expression of the roles in Ephesians 5 because each person, each circumstance, each context will be different. So as we unpack practicals for marriage, what we are not doing is creating an idealistic archetype, as though cookie cutters should be stamped across the church. We need to understand that love and respect and reverence and service will require meeting one another in our particular uh, set of circumstances. So what I would not want to do is have marriages and people start judging one another based on the the cookie cutter. I want there to be some freedom to learn to practice this stuff and make mistakes and find success and experience great unity and love. Make sense? Great. Okay. So this week, practice of marriage. There are... Let me frame it again. We want to be filled with the Spirit. And in verse 13 and 21 of this chapter, Paul tells the church at Ephesus to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the elements of pursuing the filling of the Spirit is submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. If we lose sight of the fact that the way that we treat each other, the way that husbands and wives treat each other in this context has direct ramifications for our participation in the Spirit, we miss out on what God is doing. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, um, writes this, Americans are raised in an aggressively competitive culture. We measure ourselves against one another. Competition is bred into us from the cradle. There are many settings in which this competitive spirit brings out the best in us. But there are just as many, maybe more, when it brings out the worst. And one setting in which it often brings out the very worst in us is in the family. 
If family members are in competition with one another, intimacy is insidiously undermined. We can achieve maturity in families only by being subject to one another. He's quoting Ephesians 5.21 there. But it doesn't come easy. Competitive skills are much easier to come by than submission skills. Maturity is an art form. The household is the primary setting in which we acquire it. As a reminder, you and I were created by God to flourish, not in autonomy and self-determination and some idea of freedom that really means I can do whatever I want. It's what we bring in here from the world and the culture around us. But that we were intended by God to flourish by using our freedoms to love God, to love one another, and to embrace a shared life of communion together. If we miss out on where real human living is found, this passage will sound like it undermines that that attempt. This all flows from reverence for Christ. Peterson continues, Most translators dull the sharp edge of Paul's use of the word fear in verse 21 by paraphrasing it as reverence or respect or awe, but God cannot be reduced to whatever we are comfortable with. A God without holy mystery is not a God to worship on our knees, but a cheap idol to be used on demand. Just as be subject to one another is hard to come by in the American world of competitiveness, the out of fear of Christ that supplies the umbilical cord for living submissively is hard to come by in the American culture of irreverence. We may be the proud owners of the most thoroughly irreverent mindset in human history. Americans as a whole have a minimal sense of the holy. So those two elements, that we want to be filled with the Spirit and we want to be submitted to Jesus in all things, shape the way that we with earnestness desire to work out these commands in our households as both husbands and wives, as followers of Jesus who are the bride of Christ, submitting to the love and saving of Christ. Okay, so how does Ephesians 5 help husbands and wives take on this mutual calling in the gospel? We're going to work out two really practical elements that are here in Ephesians 5. The first one is we need to die to our own desire for autonomy. We need to die to our own desire for autonomy. Jesus did not see humanity in the grip of death and remain isolated and disaffected. Philippians 2 tells us he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus, very God of very God, saw us in our peril and pursued us. He died to his own autonomy, if I could put it that way. In marriage, one of the things that undermines the practicals is two human beings seeking to assert their wills over one another. It's seeking to remain an I, and you remain a you, and then we just have some sort of contractual agreement where we give and we take and we negotiate. Now, while that might work its way out to some kind of peaceful arrangement that doesn't have a lot of hostility, it is not the communion and the union that God designed marriage to be. 
freely giving myself to you, you freely giving yourself to me. So in verse 22, Paul calls wives to die to themselves in submitting to their husbands. Here's a reminder from last week. You should go and listen to it if you weren't here. Submission is not enslavement. It's not ceasing to think for yourself. And it's certainly not allowing yourself to be abused. The word that is used here is in the middle voice in the Greek. It means there's a freely giving yourself to the command. It's choosing to put myself into that position. It's not demanded over you as a chain pulling you into a particular role. It's designed to be given to you as a role to play. Submission is refusing to enforce your own will upon another, but to embrace the posture of receptivity toward the one who bears the authority or headship. Now, here in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The wife is the body in marriage. The body is the church in regard to Jesus. Now, again, there's something that just sounds wrong to us, to many of us, in that image. We've got to do a little bit of work to help us understand what it actually means and what it doesn't mean, right? It sounds like the head, the husband, gets to dictate everything to the wife, uh, or we might imagine Jesus just dictates everything to the church. It seems to insinuate a kind of sovereignty that turns the body into uh, machinery. But that's not allowed by the way that Scripture uses this language. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus is said to have God the Father as his head. Would we say that God the Father dictates mechanistically to the Son, is unequal to the Son, or is, is greater than the Son in essence? We would be Arians committing heresy if we said that. We don't want to go there. No, headship does not connote to us a kind of uh, slavery or inequality. It cannot by the way that Scripture uses it. God the Son submitted himself to God the Father in a way that accomplished the shared goal or mission of our salvation in the world. So, when Scripture uses these words to describe particular postures and roles, oftentimes they're used of God himself. We need to see that there is dignity, there is value, there is purpose embedded within this. And whenever we see it abused, we need to say that's not God's design. It cannot be God's design. So wives die to themselves with a kind of posture that is eager and willing to receive the initiating and responsibility-bearing of a husband rather than resistant. What that doesn't mean, I feel like this is just filled with nuance, okay? What that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there's not pushback. It doesn't mean that there's not contribution in the midst of that. Conversely, it doesn't mean that husbands just get to dictate or decide what we need to do in our marriage, okay? 
Verse 25 says that husbands die to themselves by loving their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands live out this giving of themselves by deferring from their own desires in the everydayness of marriage and in the crisis moments of marriage. So, in the extraordinary, husbands, if there is a threat to the life of your wife, you are to die instead of her. It's right here in Scripture. Sin and death had entangled the people of God, and Jesus came and died in their place. There is not much more direct application of Scripture than, husband, you get to die if your wife is threatened. That's the extraordinary. Many of us, most of us, are not going to come into that circumstance, but there is a way that we die every day in the ordinary by choosing what your wife may prefer over yourself. And there are infinite applications to that. Where you go on date night, what household chores she prefers and which ones she doesn't, then you pick up the slack with the ones that she doesn't. This is the dying to yourself, the laying your life down for the sake of your particular wife. It's doing dishes on, on a regular night instead of watching football. But there's a dying for your, for your wife in particular that probably will come that is more severe than the ordinary. The twists and the turns that happen in a still broken world. Some husbands will need to intensely sacrifice and give themselves for their wife. It's an example of one. Uh, Robertson McQuilkin, what a name. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College when he and his wife learned that she had Alzheimer's. It's a brutal disease. Uh, I have multiple family members with Alzheimer's and it is tragic. In March 1990, Robertson McQuilkin resigned with these words. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I have been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. This decision to resign, in a way, was made 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with this but so does fairness. She cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, cannot be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the faith of face of her continually distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her, I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful 
person. This is a far more realistic vision of what it means to die to yourself for the sake of your wife. It also means, husbands, that you get to die for the calling of your wife. Verse 26 says, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. What Paul does here is very subversive. He speaks into a culture that was uh, very Roman, where a husband had total authority over his household, and he, he, he calls out things that are strands of truth, and he undermines them where they are wrong and broken and evil. He uses language that is very domestic in the way that a husband is to love his wife. Washing, serving, cleansing. One commentator said it's almost like, like a husband is called to do laundry and dishes in the sake of service for his wife. But it's also filled with spiritual reality in the way that a wife is called to things by God, just as a husband is called to things by God. And you see women in leadership roles throughout the New Testament, hosting the church, funding Jesus' ministry in Luke 8, all sorts of callings that cannot mean a wife is one who stays at home and runs a, hot, runs a house only, though there is much dignity in that calling, if that is what is needed, but also that there can be things outside of that that a wife is called to. So, husbands get to serve their wives so that her gifts and talents could be most fully used in glory to God and good for neighbor. There is initiative in the midst of all of this. It's a kind of love that says, my goal is to see you flourish and thrive. And we get to discern that together. So, Husbands and wives each die to themselves. Husbands as Christ did for the church, and wife as church does for the sake of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. We die to our own autonomy. Um, there's application for all of us. So, um, single men who desire to be married, guess what? We live in a really weird, awkward culture around dating. We can just acknowledge that, right? Am I, am I totally alone here in making an observation? I did all this before dating apps were really created, so I, I'm, I'm a little distant from it all. But what I see is it's just weird. It's weird. We're disembodied from each other, and our tastes are highly curated because we look online and we see an image that's portrayed on Instagram and social media. We think that every option and some perfect person exists, which does not exist. And so we feel like we just can't settle for the real people that are all around us. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. And one of the beautiful things about real community and about the church is that we are under grace. We get to know each other. We get to actually, young men, pursue someone that you are interested in. I'll just say that, all right? And dating apps aren't necessarily wrong or bad. 
Just know that they kind of set you up for failure in some ways with how easy it is to see options. Be careful what it curates in you of the perfect person that you think you can have. All right, done. <laughs> so we die to our, our own autonomy, but the second thing that this passage tells us practically is that husbands and wives live out the gospel by adoring one another. We serve one another and we adore one another. Jesus did not merely come out of obligation in our peril and our need. Jesus desired you when he died for you. This is the cultivation of intimacy together, of shared life. Husbands adore their wives by cultivating hearts that long for their wife and draw near with intimacy. In verse 27, Paul says that Christ did this, laid down his life, and that husbands are to mimic this, reflect this. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless. It's not enough merely to mechanistically serve each other in marriage. There must be the positive cultivation of intimacy and adoration. Jesus doesn't just want a bride that is broken and marred by sin. Jesus wants a bride that is holy. Some ways this gets applied to say, you know, husbands, sanctify your wives and spiritually fill them. And that is absolutely true. Husbands, you bear not only the practical responsibility, but also the spiritual responsibility to do everything that you can for your wife to thrive with Jesus. But there's also the kind of motivation that it says Jesus had. There's this heart of desire and longing for the church to be free from sin and be everything that God made her to be. There's an adoration element here. So too, husbands and wives. Men, we tend to be, tend to be, wisdom is not law, far less wired for intimacy and more for action and activity but Ephesians 5 calls us to be like Jesus in moving toward our bride in intimacy. Put negatively, husbands cannot neglect intimacy with their wives. And we're not just talking sex. Ephesians 5.29, here's the reason, Paul says, No one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. So men, we might not be naturally drawn toward relational intimacy, but two things. We need it just as much as women do. It's not a male-female thing as far as need goes. We were created for intimacy, and much of the dysfunction in a culture like ours today surrounding masculinity has to do with the belief that we just don't need intimacy. And so we're addicted to pornography because it's pseudo-intimacy. We need it, and wives lead us in the pursuit of intimacy in that way. And we serve toward intimacy between husband and wife by cultivating it. So, practical example, and I do not hold up my marriage uh, with Kate and I as the archetype. Far from it. We can have all sorts of discussion about our shortcomings. But one thing that we learned from someone else 
were date night questions. That we go out on a date night every week, which actually with kids turns into just ordering in food so we don't need to deal with any of that. And so we eat takeout on a picnic blanket in our living room, watching a show with our kids, put them to bed a little early, and then we have questions that we ask each other. What was encouraging this week? What was discouraging this week? How can I help you this week? How can I pray for you this week? Was there anything that went unsaid this week that we need to say? It's the cultivation of intimacy. And I'll be totally honest with you, there are a lot of nights where I remember it and I'm like, maybe she'll forget. <laughs> Full confession. I'm just not wired towards that. But I need that. In verse 33, Paul says, all right, I don't have it here. Someone read verse 33 for us. So let us see that husbands love your wives and a wife see that she respects her husband. Is that what it says? All right. That's speaking about the things that tend to prohibit health and vitality, intimacy in marriage. Husbands, we can be focused on men. We can be focused on everything out there and overlook the one right here. Conversely, and I want to tread really softly and just say, tends to happen, not always happens. We're not speaking law. But husbands will fail you, wife. Um, what not to do in the midst of that, which is sometimes justified in some sort of way is the kind of critique or criticism in the failings. It will stunt intimacy. That's why Paul says, just as the church does not... Um, see, this is where it falls, it falls short. Okay. Listen with humble ears, okay? Jesus never fails us, right? Amen. When we grumble and complain about Jesus, it's always unmerited, Right? We still do it. Husbands do fail all the time, <laughs> right? They do. They deserve being told when they fail, um, especially when it's particularly harmful or it's a pattern. So what this isn't saying is don't ever bring up patterns that are destructive and invite community into the difficulties of marriage. Marriage should be lived out in community. But what it's saying is the, the operating mode of husbands, love your wives, pursue them. Don't overlook them for the sake of the stuff out there. Wives, love your husbands. Don't critique them all the time. Respect them. Where it goes wrong is because Jesus never deserves our critique, and husbands often do. And yet we don't love our husbands. I'm speaking in the plural here, and I'm confused too. <laughs> we don't love one another because we earn it. It's because Jesus, he's told us, he's put us where we are. And it's out of reverence for him that we love each other. Make sense? So we embody marriage by the way that we die to ourselves, our own autonomy. We embody marriage by the way that we adore each other. We cultivate this kind of adoring heart. It's awfully hard to complain about each other when we adore each other. It's awfully hard to be apart from one another or repelled by one another when we adore each other. So, I want to close with one practical. Very practical, okay? 
This is not directly from this passage of Scripture, but it's integral to health in the midst of marriage. We have all seen marriages that are marred by constant fighting and bickering and hostility. And um, conversely, but in the same way, we've seen marriages whose intimacy has died long ago and they're living parallel lives. First of all, Jesus can restore any marriage. There is always hope, whether that's your marriage or it's the marriage of your parents or the marriage of friends. There is always hope in the redeeming grace of Jesus. But there is also wisdom to not get to that outcome. And that simple wisdom is to pursue or to move toward tension and to keep short accounts. Move toward the tension and keep short accounts. Don't avoid the tension. It'll either explode eventually or intimacy will die. And we need to continually be practicing forgiveness of one another, even when it's not necessarily asked for. So, this is gospel marriage for all people. Jesus is our husband. We are the bride. All of us participate in these dynamics of the gospel. And it's conveyed in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The awe and the wonder is that we are one flesh with Jesus by his spirit. As we seek to follow him, his spirit fills us, and we experience that unity of the gospel more and more and more.